Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are on the bid and moving higher minute by minute. Just yeah. short of all-time high. It's got that real melt-up feel to start the year. Yeah. Then we went, bumped into the Middle East tensions, Lisa, but back on track again. Equity futures pushing higher. What's interesting is we didn't really see a meltdown, right? I mean, amid all of the sort of potentially sensational headlines, the meltdown wasn't that significant, but the melt-up persists and sort of is the dominant headline. I think that is the narrative is, driving 2020. This is surprised me. I got I to gotta be honest here. I mean, I knew we'd recover with good news and all that, but this is where the... I want to really emphasize to people driving worldwide, the vengeance of this melt-up is extraordinary. At least the breath is actually pretty good out there at the moment. 82%, I think, of S&P 500 firms above their average for the past 200 days. It's not just some massive companies dominating things, although they've done really well over the last 12 months. Some of the stocks out there outside of the big names are still up there. If you've avoided stocks, you've been punished. So basically, traders have learned their lessons. Why are you looking at me when you say that? (laughs) I mean, come on. Are you going to make it quadruple leveraged uh, a cash fund at this point? Did you miss the announcement last week? You weren't with us. I was not with us. No, 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 you weren't with us. It's a big deal. Tom said he was coming out of Cash. 0.005% per day. You know, that, that just going to shift, shift things out. Oh, as the year rally. grows older, his cash allocation I'm, will slowly fall. It's, it's the f- triple leverage anti beta fund. Just, is that what you call it? Who, yeah. who manages that? Uh, Mrs. That King. Bill. <laughs> yeah, that bill is, is quite a good manager. I will say that that does mark John, the what's the observation you see today? Look, I think things are okay. Things are all right. Uh, and for that reason, it's actually were through last year and into this year. 2020, though, is a show me the money year show me the better data show me the earnings show me everything's okay you've had your easing we had that from the fed last year we had it from the ecb now show me the improvement well and show me the improvement but not too much improvement that actually calls the fed's hand or calls the ecb's hand right I and mean, we're still in that goldilocks scenario because at a certain point if we do start to see inflation pick up that could be the the sort of shock that a lot of people are waiting for so we bring in jim glassman we should. A, a day early. JP Morgan, senior economist, <laughs> joining us a day early. Why aren't you with us for payroll today? What's oh, this about? I wanted to turn the alarm clock off. Do you want to do, do, do a tomorrow. payroll special 24 hours? Early? Yeah, actually, my colleagues are um, telling us that when Thanksgiving hits late, uh, you tend to get a soft December. So we got a low expectations for December, even though ADP came in on the surprisingly good side. And I have to tell you, I'm amazed the job growth is as strong as it is given the demographics that's going on. We keep thinking it's going to be slowing down. It is slowing down a little, but I think this will be the year when we see somewhat slower job growth. Well, we got a headline just out, Lisa. I don't mean to interrupt, Lisa, but Kohl's uh, really keeping on this retail difficulty. Kohl's out at the low end of their estimate, and that goes really into the retail spirit that we saw with Macy's closing 30 stores yesterday. Yeah, and also the failure on the part of some retailers to actually adapt to the modern era. <laughs> uh, interesting to see. Mm. I uh, Right now we're looking uh, in pre market down 9%. So definitely a pretty big response there. And we'll continue to give color on that as the day goes on. But I do have to wonder, when you add, when you talk about job growth, Jim, I was looking today, 2019 was the slowest pace of jobs added to the United States since 2011. Right. Yes, it was still good, but it was the slowest since 2011. How much can it continue to slow down while supporting what we've seen with the consumer driving the U.S. economy? Well, uh we think it ought to be slowing down more because if you look at the number of people who are 16 years of age to 70, it's slowed down to roughly 50,000 a month. Uh, 10 years ago, it was 200,000 a month. So that's the, that's, the, the, that's the reference point where economists are using to figure out where should we be going to. 
Um, I don't think that's bad news for consumers because what it, if what that, it, what is happening is we are settling into a sustainable pace and unemployment stays low. Pay is going to be doing better. To me, the key to the consumer picture is our workers are going to get be getting paid better. Who cares about you know the first jobs? Uh, don't generate a lot of pay. So if you have a fully employed economy and we're staying at full employment, uh, you know, not not having to worry about recession, I think that's real good news for consumers. And actually, one of the undertold stories of last year is that pay rises did increase uh, they did. significantly. And actually, I think it's at three percent now on yeah, average. Yeah. But it's which, more for the for the lower end, though. Yeah, right? which which is basically almost double the actual inflation rate. So everything seems low right now. So three percent seems really modest c- considering compared with the historical. But the thing is, inflation's come down. Everything is running slower. But I think if you look at worker pay, finally workers real pay is actually more in line with productivity, which is what we expect over time. The shock to the consumer, to the worker, was really a couple decades ago when Amazon and everybody came on stream and you got this massive jolt to the share of income that was going to workers. Median estimate in our survey for tomorrow's payrolls print, 160. Before that, we had a monster 266. Lisa mentioning the decelerating payrolls growth over the last 12 months. We've been told that would happen for the last four years. I know. And we're finally starting to see the characteristics of a labor market that has reached full employment, where you will get a sizable deceleration in payrolls growth, but it's not necessarily a sign that things are falling apart. Exactly. And I think that's going to be a difficult story to get our hands around this year because everybody's so used to what we saw in the last 10 years. Mm. 200,000 jobs a, a month on average over the last 10 years. That's what you get in recovery. The thing is, that's very low by historical standards. But if the natural growth of our economy is slower, um, you know, it's adequate. And the thing is, it's been sufficient to get us back to very low levels of unemployment. So you, you just know if things stay okay, the pace of job growth is going to be slowing down more. But, but Dr. Glassman, do we need to aggregate the economy? Do we need to aggregate the labor economy of America? To me, it's truly two Americas. There's a whole America yeah. taking part in this. Yeah. But my number one male is when suits and ties like you yeah. come in and say it's it's one America and people are going, it no, it's not. It isn't. And you see it more in the pay trends. So to me, the thing that's I mean, this plays into the equity market story, too, because the thing that's really surprising to me is when you look at the, you know, where, where does the income go that's generated in the economy? The amount that goes to workers has been drifting down over the last decade, last two decades, actually. The amount going to profits has been high. So that's telling you some people are doing really well, but that's telling you somebody must be really struggling. And you see it when you're traveling around. Meanwhile, there is the idea of can companies continue to pay these higher wages and deliver numbers that that are acceptable to investors, uh, John, to your point, and we are seeing margins come in. I do have to wonder on the flip side, you know, whether profitability is is sort of commensurate with the increase in some of the wages that we're seeing. You know, people expected that should be, but I, from my point of view, profitability is, the margins are still very high by historical standards. For example, after-tax profits of American companies for most of the post-war period was like 6% of GDP. It rose over the last couple of decades to almost 10% of GDP. So I don't worry much about profit margins. And I think companies- You're not worried about the, the corporate executives? No, I don't, I don't worry much about them. I think they're doing fine. And, and, I well, think, and I think pay, you know, they can, they can offer, they're going to have to be offering more. It's in their interest uh, to offer more pay, better pay, and better benefits. And we welcome all of you. James Glassman with us one day early here with J.P. Morgan, always giving us leadership on Jobs Day. And we do it early this year, which is a great uh, idea. 
How do you respond to the incentives of change for corporations to support labor and support wages? And I mean all of labor, not just staff for that, because corporate officers need their fair share, even if they, they get better tax treatment with it as well. If with our new laws, have we skewed the incentives too much towards five or six CEOs at the top of a given company? You know, I, I think the cyclical <clears throat> dynamic is changing that story in the following way. When we, uh, when you, when you look at the, you think about what's going on in the labor market. When we pick up in our surveys, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase just did a survey of business leaders. What we're finding is everybody's realizing they could do so much more if they had more workers. They can't find workers. That's what they tell us. So that tells me, I think what's going on when I, when I talk to people, I see all kinds of creative stuff going on. They realize they've got to train people more. Once you've got people in the door, uh, you need to figure out how to do more with the, the few people that you have. And I think that what's going on is there's a recognition that you, the way you're going to grow is by developing your staff and by keeping them, retaining them. So yeah. I, I, I think this is, a, I think this is right. a story that's changing as the cyclical okay. dynamic uh, gives workers a little more bargaining power. We'll change your plans for tomorrow. We'd love to see you tomorrow Thank as well. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. Jim Glassman on a Thursday before yeah, payroll Friday. Just like away. You don't need to know tomorrow's yeah. number. It's you we, already know. We don't need to know tomorrow's well, no, number. Gets a, Breaking gets news. Early look. You know, yeah. Cudlow says. Yeah. I'm actually more yeah, interested yeah, right. in. Can, we, can we just put on a record? Cudlow <laughs> <laughs> doesn't send it to. Are you speaking to Mr. Cudlow <laughs> 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 this tomorrow? Uh, I, I believe he's scheduled. Scheduled to speak. If your badge still works, if I'm allowed to work tomorrow after what you just said, I didn't want to start a rumor there. I mean, I just you know. Decided to do, decided to do it on live radio. Just throwing it out there anyway. Jim, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Jim Glassman, thank you so much. Twenty twenty, a big year ahead, and I wonder whether if twenty nineteen was the year for triple Bs, whether twenty twenty can be the year for triple Cs. Slowly people coming around to that idea. Should we bring in our next guest, shall we? I'm pleased to say that Jeffrey Rosenberg joins us now, Senior Portfolio Manager at BlackRock Systemic Fixed Income Team. Jeff, great to catch up with you. Walk me through the conviction calls from the team at BlackRock going into a new year. Well, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a backdrop of a year for which, you know, you're coming off of very, very strong policy supported uh, returns across both debt and equity. And you think about what happened in 2019. It was the opposite of what people expected, what people got in 2018, right? Remember, 2018 was both stocks and bonds were down. 2019, you know, 30% stocks, almost 10% in bonds. And so you go into 2020, and certainly that's a year that's not going to be repeated because that's a year about policy. And what we see here, you know, forget the economy. The economy has moved in tiny increments relative to 20 and 30% swings in market performance. So it tells you it's really much more about policy. And what we're seeing for 2020 is policies on hold. So without the tailwinds of a policy support, you're really bringing down expectations across the board. It's a year where fixed income returns are going to barely 
be able to squeak out the yields, and you're starting at lower yield levels, so you're bringing those fixed income return expectations lower with the possibility of slightly, but no one has higher interest rates, no one has, ourselves included. The Fed is on hold, and there's an asymmetry. If anything bad happens, this Fed is going to cut rates. If anything good happens to inflation, they're right. going to watch it. So, so a lot more. I'll pause there. So is there uh, is there is this a year to go for the coupon to buy the uh, riskiest debt and just hold it? Well, you know, it's not at the start of the year, the time to go for the riskiest debt, because there's another aspect to what happened in 2019's returns, which is you had a great equity year and you had a great rate year. So your coupons yeah. are very low and your spreads are very tight. So valuations across the board, across credit. Now, I think in the earlier segment, you were talking about triple C's. There's a pocket of, of un, underperformance in 2019, where it was really a quality red, led rally. Uh, and so you saw at the end of December, middle of December, a little bit of the bottom end of the capital stack underperforming. But do you want to start the year where everything is priced for perfection, reaching for the yeah. bottom of the capital stack? No. You want to be more defensive. Uh, it's not that we think spreads are going to widen, but you have no margin for error in valuation. So it's more up in quality to start. Jeff Rosenberg, you've got a pro chart, which is a, a double vector chart. And I'm not going to go to the dynamics, folks, because I don't want people driving off the road but it's the relationship of the equity market to the bond market and then also worried about the market separate it's called conditional correlations translate that for mere mortals and that do you delink a bond belief from the equity market this year yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really important point when you're thinking about your overall portfolio. You know, a, a lot of times we, 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 we talk about what's the outlook for the stock market, what's the outlook for the bond market, what are you doing in bonds? But you know, people invest in their portfolios, and so it's about how do the pieces relate to one another. And the expectation in terms of the relation is, I, I'm owning safe bonds, you know, high quality bonds, treasury bonds, even my municipal bond portfolio. You know, that's mostly related to interest rates and 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 has a, has a higher quality element to it, which means that bond portion of that portfolio shouldn't have a lot of sensitivity and actually should move in the opposite direction, should provide some diversification, some ballast against my equities. But those bonds don't have a lot of yield. So when I start adding a lot of yield. The earlier question, should I go down in quality? What about high yield? What about bank loans? What about EM? You know, the juicy stuff is great. It helps me to achieve my income. But the conditional correlation is a reminder that when things go bad in my equity market, when things are going bad in my equity portfolio, yeah. if I have a lot of that higher yielding stuff, what I'm introducing into my portfolio is a lot of conditional correlation, meaning my bonds are going to go down. I'm going to see the sensitivity of my higher risk bond portfolio when I least can afford it. That is when my equity portfolio is going down. So it's just about remembering that assessing the balance between my income producing, my riskier portions of my bond portfolio has to be balanced against what I'm doing on my equity portfolio. And it's not the kind of overall, well, most of the time these things yeah. you know, are okay. It's what happens when the stock market is going down 5 or 10%. And that's when you really see the sensitivity of these riskier portions of the bond market. Jeff, really thoughtful stuff and appreciate your insight. Jeff Rosenberg there of, of BlackRock. Wonderful. And I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Now, without question, the most important conversation today 
for America and uh, quite frankly for um, our people, our officers, and our enlisted uh, in our military. Joining us, James Trevitas, the former Admiral Supreme Commander of NATO and, of course, with McClarty, and he's been hugely visible in the media in the last number of days. Admiral Trevitas, thank you so much for joining us with your new book, Sailing True North. And I've really got to go to the zeitgeist of the moment, which is the gentleman from Utah who I've interviewed many times, the even-handed Michael Lee, senator of Utah, really tearing apart the White House on the brief to Capitol Hill late yesterday on these matters in Iran and Iraq. Admiral, what actually goes on in those briefs? Yeah, I feel for the military officers who had to go and do those briefings and you could you could sense the palpable rage i think is not too strong a word from senator lee um here what you have tom of course is a collision between uh, a desire on the part of the administration to closely control all that intelligence and a they're terrified that there'll be leaks and uh, the sources will be revealed and on the other side the congress clearly wants to right. do its job in oversight. So it's gonna be a it's gonna be a contested space. No where where does the Pentagon fit in? Do they report and do they do lockstep with what President Trump and the administration want? Or is there an independence to the messaging of the Pentagon on these intelligence matters? Let me give you a nuanced answer to that. Um, certainly the Pentagon is always going to follow the direction of the civilian leadership, the Secretary of Defense, a political appointee, and in fact, obviously the president, the commander in chief. But Tom, whenever I testified in front of Congress, uh, particularly the Senate, Senator McCain would always say, you senior military have a responsibility to us, to the Congress, to always tell the truth brutally, the full truth. And so, uh, yes, it will be following some level of political guidance, but you can be assured when a uniformed officer goes up to the Hill, he or she is going to lay out the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So let's talk about the issue uh, between Iran and U.S. Everybody's saying uh, issue over the tensions have been diffused. And yet here we have uh, this Boeing jet that crashed near Tehran uh, that was headed to Ukraine, basically in the back seat here. But people sort of saying it looks incredibly suspicious. There could be or have been some allegations that could be uh, uh, an errant missile. What do you make of that? How closely uh, are U.S. military members watching that? Uh, very closely. And I think uh, not only U.S. military members, but anybody commercially who is considering flying in and out of uh, not only Iran, but frankly, the broader Middle East right now uh, ought to take that into consideration. Look, there needs to be a full, thorough, transparent international investigation. And I think the black box will quickly tell us whether those pilots had a sudden catastrophic explosion, read a missile, or uh, they had some kind of engine failure. There are engine failure scenarios that can result in explosion and fire as well. But you'll know from uh, those black boxes. So uh, I, I call on the Iranians to reveal those. The international aviation industry needs to know what happened here. What does the U.S. do with those black boxes? Let's say they reveal uh, that the jet was shot down. What does the U.S. do? 
the U.S. will, along with the entire international community, will condemn Iran for the shootdown if that occurs. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, I think it would be irresponsible at this point to, to start uh, a, a chain that leads to some kind of conspiracy theory. We all ought to be calling on Iran to reveal the contents of those black boxes. Uh, if there is malfeasance, it ought to be revealed in the same way that uh, when the uh, airliner was shot down over Ukraine by right. uh, Russian and Ukrainian insurgents, there's been widespread condemnation of that. And by the way, we ought to own up to the fact that the United States of America, our Navy, shot down an Iranian jet in an accident in 1988 that had 290 civilians on it. These things happen. They're terrible. They need to be fully investigated and fully transparent, which the United States was in the incident I just mentioned. Admiral, with your public service to the nation over the last number of days, your essay in Time Magazine, your essay for Bloomberg Opinion, and your many media appearances, I would like to review one moment, I believe it was on Friday, where you discussed the optionality of the Iranian Navy at the Gulf of Hormuz. Repeat that again quickly. I can. Uh, as we all know, 30 percent of the world's oil flows through the Strait of Hormuz coming out of the Arabian uh, Gulf into the Indian Ocean. So it's highly trafficked. The Iranians have diesel submarines, very quiet, capable in shallow waters. They can swarm small craft that have surface-to-surface missiles on them. Even against a larger destroyer, a Navy destroyer, that's a challenge. And they have cruise missiles, which can be launched from coastal regions against our ships. So the Iranians are very capable in that scenario. That's where another concern ought to be Very quickly, is their line officer military separate from the Revolutionary Guard and separate from the leaders of the Islamic Republic? Yes, there is. And in general, they are very professional. When we see, if you will, cowboy antics at sea, uh, runs against our ships, crazy things on Mm. the radio, threats, it comes from the Revolutionary Guards, who, let's face it, will be at a high state of emotion given the killing of their leader, General Soleimani. James Trevitas, thank you so much. And again, the book, folks, can't say enough about it. Chapter to chapter on individual admirals. I'll go right, as he mentions, diesel submarines to Rickover. A chapter alone on Admiral Rickover is worth uh, the price of admission. Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, covers all things industrials, but right now she's focused on Boeing. Brooke, the 737 MAX is still not in the air. What's the latest in terms of trying to get it back in the air? So the latest is that Boeing has come out and recommended that pilots undergo flight simulator training. Now, this is a significant shift from Boeing's previous stance. A key reason why we're even talking about the 737 MAX is that Boeing did not want to have pilots go through simulator training. That was a key selling point for the plane. That was key to Boeing's efforts to catch up to Airbus's A320 program. So for them to be pivoting at this point signals to me that the gravity of this crisis is finally sinking in for them and that they're starting to realize the extent of the financial penalty. There's reports from the New York Times and others that they made this decision after pilots from United Airlines, American Southwest, uh, and Aeromexico were in simulators testing out that new software and they did not follow expected emergency checklists, that they were able to avoid crashes of the airplane, but they did not follow proper procedures. So that just reinforces the idea that this is a fundamentally different plane and that pilots 
need to be properly informed and trained on its features. So, okay, so that's a big change. And so my guess would be that would delay, if I have to get every pilot you know, to go through the simulator, this is gonna push back when this thing can get in the air. So now what are we talking about? So a key thing to note is that there are only 34 simulators currently certified for the MAX by some estimates. So there's a logistical challenge in just getting all the pilots to actually sit in a simulator. So you're right, this is certainly going to be a delay for the return oh. to service of uh. the MAX. And it's also going to be an expense because simulators are expensive to buy and it's expensive for the airlines to pull the pilots out yeah. of their normal work to sit in one of these. And, and, and you know, to my point on flight deck out in Anaheim with 120 minutes, $398. These are adults <laughs> in their dead series. How long do they simulate for before they feel confidence in flying the new 737 MAX. So that part is not clear yet. We don't know exactly yeah. what all this will entail, if they'll have to go through the same degree of training as they would if it's an entirely new airplane, if it'll be supplemental. Uh, that part we don't know. And Boeing is also, I should note, exploring uh, retrofitting simulators for older 737 models, but it's not clear yet whether or not they can do you, that. You have been brilliant on this. You, you know, you've had a journalistic skepticism of the Boeing story from day one. Are you less skeptical now? I'm, I'm not because I, I have a very hard time giving Boeing a lot of credit for this thing as it's more than a year after the first MAX crash. And given everything that's taken place and all of the delays and the public upbraiding by the FAA, what, just a month ago? I mean, I, I don't, I find it hard to believe that this is a company that has truly turned over a new leaf. I think what we learn from the MAX crisis is that there was a culture of, of arrogance and superiority at Boeing and, and sort it, of a refusal to accept accountability for this crisis. It, it remind me, you're from Kansas? I am See, from the, Kansas. This, <laughs> you got to understand, folks, for those of you worldwide and, you know, even on the, the east and the left coast, people in Kansas are mental about aviation. The heritage goes yep. back. You, know, you think the Wright brothers in <laughs> North Carolina and all that. No, it's Kansas is ground zero of testing. Is that because it's flat? Is there a mountain? Maybe. In Kansas? <laughs> there might be. You know what? There is a hill in Lawrence where there I'm from. The Campanile Hill. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to Lawrence. Uh, Good morning, Lawrence, Kansas. Sirius XM 119. So, Brooke, how about the new CEO? Has that. Do you think he will, can be an agent for change in that culture you're talking about here? So, the CEO. Uh, spent nearly three decades at General Electric okay. under okay. Jack Welch. And then he was in the running to become Boeing CEO. He lost that job to Jim McNerney, who was also an ex-GE guy. He, uh, the, CEO, the current CEO of Boeing, or to be CEO in a few days, uh, Dave Calhoun, um, was on the board since 2009. So he was responsible for blessing a lot of the decisions that got Boeing into this mess. And Coming from the culture that was GE, having been at Boeing for so long, I, I am a little skeptical that he is necessarily the change agent that Boeing needs. And I do wonder if you might see sort of a John Flannery 2.0 type of situation. John Flannery was the successor to Jeff Immelt, who succeeded Jack Welch, and he was there for 14 months. He basically had to take out the garbage and air all of GE's dirty laundry, and then you needed somebody else to come in and Larry Culp to really change that company. And I, I think you could see a similar situation play out at Boeing. What is the dynamic right now of the great arch split of Boeing between defense and commercial? 
What is that dynamic right now? So defense has been strong for them, and I think yeah. it will continue to be strong. I mean, certainly there's been uh, a lot of negative headlines on their tanker okay. uh, plane <clears throat> that they have had some issues yeah. with sort of stray parts being left there, and, and the Department of Defense has not been right. super pleased about that, but they, they do seem to be stronger in defense I, I than they are in commercial. Th- tragically, 30 seconds left. We should have you back on this. What can you do, Brooks Sutherland, to be sure the 747 is never mothballed? Can we just have it fly forever? Yes. <laughs> I, I, can, I can look into can that. Can you work into this? <laughs> and bring back the what do you like about it? It's great. Yes. It's, it's the only airplane that matters. It's part of the fabric of our generation. Uh, for, I, I'm advantaged folks and then I can sit rock star up on the upper deck, you know, <laughs> with the pilots and all that. But it's the only real plane out there. All the rest of them are tinker toys. Well, they are. Am I right, Sweeney's uh, on his hat? Love it. Love to see that thing pull up to the gate. They Brooks. are trying to pivot more towards narrow bodies. From I'll give bodies. you a pivot. So, so maybe. To 747. Yeah. <laughs> Brooks Sutherland, expert on Boeing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.